sermon is uh, one that uh, hit home uh, several times this week, and I thought there is a whole lot more that should be said that I don't know how to say uh, in this passage. And so um, it is my my prayer that as I speak to your ears, that God would speak to your hearts. Um, I think I know most of you in here and would say that uh, you probably would, uh, profess to be Christians. And so it means it means something in very particular to those of us who um, profess to know Christ. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we need you to speak to us. We will be completely wasting our time if all we do is sit and listen for a little while to some guy say some words that have good morals, have uh, good thoughts, but uh, really don't have any life-changing power to them. Father, we can't even obey your words without your Holy Spirit enabling us. You give us the will. You give us the ability to obey. And so we, we desperately need you to speak to us. Give us the life that is within these words. Give us the instruction that we need. The, the reproof, even, that is necessary often in our lives. Father, we need the encouragement and the comfort that the Scriptures bring to us. Uh, these are the, This is the bread that we live by. This is the milk and the meat of the Word. And so, as a father who knows his children so intimately and so closely and carefully, for those who need the milk of the Word, we pray that it would be supplied through this passage for those who are ready for strong meat that it would be um, sufficient and nourishing to their to their bodies and souls as well I pray that things that shouldn't be said won't be said I pray that things that should be said would be things that are forgotten would somehow be uh, brought to our minds through your spirit we thank you for him who does the work that no one else can see but is faithful each and every time we open the word we pray that uh, you would have your way in our in our hearts and our lives in these few moments that we have together. We pray all this because of Jesus. Amen. Jesus is nearing the end of his instruction to his disciples. We kind of got to that point already, and you saw we've we've made our way through his his sermon, the the uh, mission discourse here. The twelve apostles. I'm, something's I don't know if it's very sensitive right now or what. Sorry for that. The twelve have been made aware of the difficulties that they are going to face as his ambassadors, as ambassadors for Christ. Persecution is going to come, Jesus warned them. He said that uh, it's going to happen. It's dangerous. It's going to be uh, very oppressive out there, but don't be afraid. Don't fear it. In previous passages, specifically last week, we learned why. They didn't need to fear the opposition. Why they don't need to fear the danger of the mission field. Though they were going to go in as sheep among wolves, though there would be arrests, rejection, even death, the disciples weren't going to run away from the challenge. And we see that as we read through the book of Acts, that they stood up to a lot of stuff that none of us have ever had to stand up to. They wouldn't hide in fear. Rather, they would boldly enter the mission field, wisely move among the wolves, search for lost sheep, 
proclaim Jesus' words to all who would listen to them. And as we read Jesus' final instructions to them here in this passage before this particular mission, we need to notice that He leaves them, um, that what He leaves them with applies not only to this specific mission that He's sending them on, but every mission that follows. Um, you, if you pay attention and you're reading ahead a little bit, you notice that there's not a whole lot of uh, closure on this mission. We don't really find out what happened. We don't find out how long it lasts. Um, Jesus says He sent them out, and we assume they came back. When we get to chapter 12, the disciples are back with Him. Uh, but Matthew is spending more time not on the mission itself, but on what Jesus sends them out on the mission with, these instructions here. And they apply to this mission, but they apply also to every mission that the disciples of Christ will go on after that, including the mission that we, uh, we, we are tasked with. The persecution has been a clear theme throughout Jesus' instruction here to them, and it continues to be so in this passage today. But here, Jesus reveals to His disciples and to us, uh, how much persecution fits into this plan. It's not just a hurdle. It's not just a, a, a something that they need to deal with or something that, that they're going to have to learn to bear while doing the mission. In fact, persecution plays an important role in their task. I would suggest that persecution opposition to Christ and the Gospel and even Christians is a process that happens on earth to separate Jesus' followers from His enemies. It's what Jesus uses to discern between the sheep and the goats. Between those who are true followers of Jesus and those who are not. Persecution reveals who the true disciples are really are. It separates wheat and chaff. And it identifies those who are truly following Jesus and those whose commitment to Christ is only superficial, shallow, it's insincere. Persecution tests our commitment to Christ, doesn't it? If you've ever had to deal with some sort of persecution, uh, some sort of oppression, some sort of opposition, to a, to making a stand for Christ, you know it. It's a test, and when you pass that test, you learn just how strong you really are in your faith. Or when you fail the test, we learn the same lessons. And there are going to be those who stand true and remain faithful, just as there are going to be those who prove themselves to be unworthy, as Jesus calls them, unworthy and unable to be His disciples. How are we going to find out? Through persecution. So this morning I want to show, I want to look at four ways. I want to show you four ways that persecution reveals something to us. Something about us. And ultimately, if we are truly following Jesus. Now this, this week, um, was, I mean, if it was just for me, then it was, it was, it was good. It was enough. As I was reading through these things and challenged on on every on every uh, front, I, sometimes I think, man, do I need to share that, or I need to just kind of—is that just for me? Uh, because it's so uh, it impacted me in, in a spe- special way 
uh, and I hope to, to convey that as well to you. First, notice how persecution reveals who or what we most fear. Jesus had reminded the men three times in the last set of verses that we looked at not to be afraid. And, and so just as a reminder to you, if you, it's been a week or maybe you weren't here Sunday, you, you wouldn't, may not remember them or notice them, but just as a refresher here, Jesus said to not be afraid of being misunderstood or unwelcomed. He said it back in verse number 24. Back in, and then verse 28, he said, don't be afraid of being hurt or killed. He said, uh, all they can do is kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. He said in verse number uh, 31, he talked about not being afraid of being alone and uncared for. And the point is pretty clear here. Don't fear the opposition. Don't be afraid of the persecution. Don't fear those who only have the ability to hurt your body. Their power is limited only to this temporary life. So value the soul above the body. Fear God, not man. And so Jesus continues there in verse 32. And we see even as the, 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 the connection here uh, is, is strong. We could have continued it last week, but for sake of time and breaking it into chunks, we, we, we separate them and, and put this last part together. But he's, he's continuing a theme here of persecution as he begins there. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. He hasn't changed the subject here. He's still uh, building off of what he was just talking about. Don't be afraid of them. Fear God. God cares for you. God knows what you're going through. He sees you. He counts the hairs on your head. He, uh, You are more valuable than many sparrows. So, if you acknowledge me, or if you confess me, I will confess you. I will acknowledge you. Now that word acknowledge, it means to confess Christ. It Literally, it means to say the same. If you say the same, uh, I will say the same. And it can be used to describe a person confessing to a crime, right? The evidence is all stacked up against him, and he admits or owns up to his actions. We say he confessed uh, to the crime. He agreed with the evidence. But acknowledging Christ is more than than that. Acknowledging or confessing Christ is a commitment to him. This word is a tricky word, which is why we see it translated in a lot of different ways, because it, is, it, it encompasses so much more than the one word that we assign to it. Oftentimes, that's how the, the scriptures are. The, 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 what, what takes one word in the original language takes an entire a phrase or sentence uh, or a group of words to really capture the full meaning of what God is saying. And Jesus is saying here to acknowledge Him is to, uh, is to admit but it's also to commit to Him. It's a profession of allegiance to Him. It's being unashamed of Him. It's siding with Him. It's claiming Christ. And since the earliest days of the church, Christians have been ridiculed. They have been oppressed. They have been threatened, tortured, killed for their allegiance to Christ. The message of the Gospel is mocked. Laughed at, but Paul said that, and Paul said that it's considered foolishness by those who don't believe it. And he wrote in Romans, he said, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel." The writer of Hebrews 11 talked about those who died in faith; they confessed or they acknowledged that they were strangers and pilgrims 
on the earth. They were searching for the city of God. And the Bible says there, and, and the, the writer says that for this reason, God was not ashamed to be called their God. And that's, that's kind of the, what, what Jesus is, is talking about here. These people were in, in Hebrews 11 were tortured for their faith. Many died for their allegiance to Christ. Most of them suffered great loss because of their great commitment to Christ. And though they may have had the natural fear of those who would do them harm, they feared God more. And when the time came for their allegiance to be tested, when their faith in Christ meant losing everything they had, even life itself, they boldly affirmed, confessed, they acknowledged, I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb. Because Jesus said that a true disciple acknowledges Him despite the consequences. They may face death. They may face imprisonment or torture. But their commitment is so strong. Whatever the opposition may be, their faith, their commitment does not waver. Paul sensed that in his mission he knew that if he was to go to Jerusalem, he, he, he talked about an Acts that he sensed, he didn't know exactly what would happen, but he, he had a good feeling that it would end up badly for him. That it would end up in, uh, in, in, it cost him his freedom, maybe even his life. But he wrote this, he said, none of these things move me. It doesn't matter to me. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is what persecution does. It's what it does for us. It tests our commitment to Christ and reveals to us who or what we fear most. Do we fear man? Do we uh, fear man who can try to humiliate us or maybe imprison us or even kill us? Or do we fear God who cares for us and has the ultimate power over our destiny? What will we say if and when we are questioned? When we're faced with the consequences, what will we say? D.A. Carson wrote, a necessary criterion for being a disciple of Jesus is to acknowledge Him publicly. This will vary in boldness, fluency, wisdom, sensitivity, and frequency from believer to believer but consistently to disown Christ is to be disowned by Christ. And there's going to be times, like Peter did, it'll be, it'll be like a, for us, in a moment of weakness, we let the fear of man rule our hearts. We don't stand like we should for Christ. Or we shamefully minimize our Christian faith so that we can turn an uncomfortable situation a little more in our favor, so we can make it a little less awkward. Maybe we just flat out deny Christ like Peter did. Three times. And for those times, there's mercy. And there's forgiveness. We're able to confess that sin. We're able to be forgiven just as Peter did. And Peter very quickly uh, gained this, this, uh, this, uh, this unashamed posture towards the Gospel. And the same Peter who denied Christ very few weeks later, stood boldly and preached on Pentecost. To consistently and to continuously deny Him, though, or to reject Him, 
to disown him for the sake of our comfort and our safety comes with its own consequences. We tend to deny or, 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 or to disown or to reject whatever word you want to use there because of the situation we're in. It's just, it's just easier if I don't stand up for Christ. But, and we know that if we do stand up for Christ, there are going to be consequences. But Jesus is clear here in verse 32 and 33 that there are consequences if we don't stand up for Christ. If we deny Him, He says, I will deny you to my Father. So, whom do we fear? Where does my allegiance lie? It is time for Christians to stand up to the fear of man and be counted for Christ. Notice secondly, as we begin in verse 34, persecution reveals our loyalty and our devotion. The pressure shifts from a massive public trial, these words used in verses 32 and 33 kind of give us this impression of a standing on trial for your faith, and it moves kind of from a courtroom to a more familiar setting. It moves into the home. Verse 34, Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The Gospel of Jesus Christ divides people, doesn't it? Jesus told the disciples not to expect that His coming was going to bring peace to the earth. Some including the disciples, believed that when Messiah came, He would bring peace. He would restore order to the world. But Jesus said quite the contrary. Christmas time, which we're nearing, we think about the angels. They announced the message. And what did they say when they announced the message of, 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 of a Savior who is born? They said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Isaiah, the prophet, foretold that Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. But this time was not the time for peace. Jesus said He had not come to bring peace, but a sword. Sword divides, separates things. And Jesus hadn't come literally with a sword. He wasn't a military conqueror. He was speaking of the results of His mission. That which would, 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 would occur when He fulfilled His mission. It would divide people because of who He is. And what he was doing, there would be sharp division between people. And this gospel of peace will be recognized by some as that which brings us peace with God. Some of us today, we can say, I have peace with God. I have the peace of God. But others will not see the gospel that way. Those who reject Christ and His Gospel, they also reject those who follow Him. And that's where this persecution and rejection comes from. Even in the closest of our relationships. Notice Jesus showed how families are divided between father and son, between mother and daughter, in-laws against their each other. Why? What's, what's that cause of division? Jesus simply because of Jesus. Because turning to Christ means turning away from everything else, including family. Jesus said that 
being a true disciple means choosing Jesus above everyone and everything, even your family. In fact, he raises the bar at the end by stating that he's not willing to be one of our loves, just one of our closest relationships. Top five, not going to cut it. He is not satisfied with having a place in our heart and life. He demands the highest place. First place. So much so that if my love for anybody else or anything else uh, surpasses or even equals my love for Christ, Jesus said it's not good enough. You are not worthy of me, he says. I must be first. I must command your highest love and devotion. I must have your supreme loyalty. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. Now think about that. How, how, how did, how that was received by people in this, in this culture? Family was very important. I mean, family's important even in our culture, in our generation, but in this generation even more so. And Jesus was saying, you can't love your mom more than me. And you can't love your child more than me. I must be first in your life. The highest place belongs to Christ. Scripture is very clear about our responsibility and our obligations to our family, but Christ comes first. That means that if there's ever a conflict between Christ and my family, for the true disciple, Jesus wins every time. That's easy to say until we're put in that situation when we do have to make a choice between child or Christ, between a parent's wishes and between Christ's commands. Now, unbelieving spouses or parents or children, they'll balk at this because this does not sound family-friendly. It's not family-friendly. Even nominal Christians won't understand. They just don't see why religion has to come before family. Why can't they work together? After all, they, we have that, that, that phrase, right? Family first, right? Family should be first. They should come first. Jesus disagrees. He says, I come first. I come before all those things. Listen again. Whoever loves father or mother more than me isn't worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. You know, there's, there's certain people that I've met in my life that one of the, the great qualities about them is that they're just, they, they deeply love their families. I hope you have someone like that in your family. They just, they love unconditionally and so obviously and tangibly and, 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 and just, I mean, it is unquestioned that person loves the people in their group, their, their family. They, they love their wife. They love their husband. They love their children. They, I mean, they, they sacrifice in so many ways for their family. Jesus said, that's great. But if I don't come before all of them, can't be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. You're not worthy of me. Simply because he's not first. So the question then we have to ask, who do you love most? Where's your loyalty? Persecution will reveal that. The tests, the rejection, 
the opposition, the pushback that we get sometimes, it's going to reveal who we truly love the most. Christian, will you stand up and be counted in the ranks of Christ? Thirdly, look at the, the notice the persecution reveals another part of our, our uh, part about us. It reveals our desires and our ambitions. What do you desire the most? What on earth or in this life do you have your set, your heart set on having? For some people, it's some possession, some thing. I want to have my own house one day. I want to have a boat. I want to have a cabin in the woods. I want to have, uh, whatever it may be. For some, it's the chase of feeling. I want to have this, this, I want to have a family. I want to have love. I want to find, uh, happiness. I want to find fulfillment. I want to be a millionaire. Whatever. We, we're, everyone's chasing something. We all have some sort of dream, some goal, some desire. I want a job. I want to be this person. I want to have these people in my life, whatever it may be. And the list goes on and on and on. But when we come to Christ, we find in Him one who is unwilling to let us follow Him and our own desires. He says you can't do both. You're either going to follow after what you want or you're going to follow after me. We simply cannot fit Jesus into our schedules and our lives. Look at verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He uses this phrase, not worthy of me, several times here. First, if you love your family more than Jesus, you're not worthy of Jesus. And he says, secondly, if you're not willing to take your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And when you hear the word cross, we see that, that phrase there, take up your cross. What comes to mind when you hear the word cross? Probably most of us think about Jesus' cross. We think about Calvary. Think about the price that was paid for our sin. How Jesus offers a way to bring man back to God. But at this point, the disciples weren't very clear on Calvary. They weren't really sure about this whole idea of the Messiah being a suffering servant. They were still thinking He was going to enter Jerusalem as the King and set up His kingdom soon and restore the peace and the order for Israel. But Jesus hadn't spoken a whole lot about His death and resurrection yet. So I don't think that the disciples were thinking of Calvary's cross when He told them they needed to take up their cross and follow Him. But they were very familiar with the cross. This wasn't a new term that they wouldn't have understood. They were very familiar with what a cross meant. The cross stood for painful suffering and shame, humiliation, a slow and agonizing death. When the Romans condemned someone to die by crucifixion, they would require him to carry the cross beam to the place where he would die. They would keep the, uh, that would keep the, 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 the vertical beam in place and they would, they would have them, uh, th- that would be at the place already and they would have them carry the cross beam to wherever they were going to go and crowds would come and they would line the streets and watch these people on a death march. No one expected anything other than death as a result of carrying a cross. No one ever returned after carrying a cross. Writer Tim Challies offers this explanation. He says, no one in the Lord's time would have missed this because the cross stood for terrible pain and excruciating death. 
To carry the cross was the death march where one would stand before the judge and be declared guilty. As a public display of one's own guilt, one would have to carry the crossbar from the judgment seat all the way to the site of execution. It was publicly humiliating, and this was a public testimony of being under under the higher authority of the judge. You were effectively agreeing with the judge's condemnation. So when Jesus' disciples heard, you must take up your cross, they knew that he was talking about a very serious commitment here. Taking up your cross isn't a temporary pledge. It isn't having some bad event or tragic circumstance come into your life and learning to deal with it. Sometimes that's how we mean it. Oh, it's my cross I have to bear. Got him as my spouse or got her as my wife. That's the cross I have to bear. That's not a cross. Cross is much more than that. A cross means death. It means losing everything. When we talk about a crucified life, it doesn't mean handling your disease in a way that honors God. You should handle whatever life situation you have in a way that honors God. But that's not taking up your cross. John MacArthur wrote, a cross is the willing sacrifice of everything one has, including life for the sake of Christ. It's something that, like the Lord Himself, a believer must take on Himself when it is thrust upon Him by the unbelieving world because of His relationship to God. Think about that. Taking up your cross, thrust upon you, never coming back. But Jesus said, if you don't, you're not worthy to be my disciple. But Jesus reminds us that this is actually the way to find life. We find true living life in Christ by losing it here in this world. He said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what do you desire most? A life that is filled with earthly pleasures and joys? One that is peaceful and happy and fulfilled? Or one that means giving up everything to serve Christ and to gain everything in Him? A true disciple sacrifices his own life. He lays it all down, picks up a cross to follow Jesus. As the song goes, the world behind me, the cross before me. That's not completely accurate. The cross is not before me. I'm carrying it. The world behind me, the cross with me. No turning back. You can't turn back. No one carrying a cross in those days could say, okay, I've had enough of this, I'm done. You picked up that cross, you were effectively dead. Everything else, there was no lunch plans being made. Every other calendar event after that moment was pretty much didn't include you. And that's what Jesus says that we're supposed to do. That persecution forces me to show whose side I'm on. And when I side with Christ, the world rejects me. Right? They say, if you're with Him, and you can die like Him, the world hands me a cross. Just as they handed one to Jesus. And I know what it means. It means to follow Jesus that I'm going to leave everything behind for this world. I'm going to give up my hopes and my dreams, my plans for my life, 
because my life is done. I lost it. But I'm carrying, and I'm carrying a cross. There's no coming back from that. Now, I follow Christ. Whatever He has planned, that's what I'll take. Wherever He goes, however it goes, it's fine with me. So, what do you desire most in life? Persecution will tell you the answer. And it's time for Christians to stand up, to take up their cross and be counted. Finally, we see that persecution reveals our partnerships. There are three different people that are mentioned in these verses, and you'll see them as we read through them here, but yet the focus still remains on Jesus. He's the focus in this entire passage. Look in verse 40. Whoever receives you, he's talking about the apostles, whoever receives the apostles receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That's the Father. Now the one who receives a prophet is the first group. Because he is a prophet, or in the name of a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones, that's the third group, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now literally the text reads, in the name of, or in the authority of. So um, if your Bible says, because he is a prophet, uh, literally, it means in the name of. And, and, it, and it means uh, for the sake of that person. And so most English translations are going to say, because he is. Jesus is saying that a true disciple receives and welcomes other disciples, and he does so because of their mutual shared relationship with Jesus Christ. They receive prophets because they are prophets and righteous people and little ones. As a disciple of Jesus, I receive these people not because I'm a Christian, but because they are, because he is a prophet, because they are a disciple. I recognize their connection to the work of Christ, and because of that special relationship that he has with Jesus or that she has with Jesus, I receive them. Jesus has said that by welcoming him, I welcome Jesus himself. And by welcoming Jesus, I welcome the Father who sent him. I value the righteous person or even the little one because of who he is in Christ. And therefore, I participate in his service to Christ by offering my help. In a way, his service to Christ is my service to Christ. It may be by providing that, that disciple or that prophet a place to stay. We talked about that earlier when they, when they were going to the villages and they would find someone who was worthy. And how, how were they worthy? They would receive them. They would offer them a place to stay. They would offer them uh, food and, and drink while they were there. Whatever they needed because they weren't supposed to bring it with them. They were supposed to rely on them. And Jesus shows the opposite side here. When I receive those men, when I receive those fellow workers, I'm receiving Christ Himself and the Father along with them, thereby participating in the mission with those other people. And it's my privilege to participate in the mission. Now keep in mind, persecution is still happening. He didn't change subjects yet. He still Persecution still plays a big role in this. And by associating with Christ's disciples, I take a risk of being connected with them and being persecuted along with them. But I do it anyway. 
Why? Because that's what a true disciple does. I identify with Christ and his people despite all the pressure not to. No matter what it may cost me. No matter how much I may lose. I value Christ. Which means I value his mission. That means I value his workers. However great or small they may be. And whatever the risk or loss it may bring to me. I stand with them. But notice that although there's a loss on one hand, there's a reward on the other because he says Christ allows us to enjoy the reward of those with whom we labor. When we stand with missionaries around the world, we share in their reward. When we partner and support other gospel churches and pastors and preachers and evangelists in our area, we share in their reward. When they win, we win. Even if all we can do is offer a cup of cold water. We get involved however we can. Because by receiving them, by helping them, we're receiving Christ. Participating in His work. So while persecution may not be a pleasant thing, it serves a purpose. It helps us to identify who really is with Christ. It helps to remind us whose side we're on. It draws the family of God closer together. Now if you're here and you're trying to decide on following Christ is really for you, you need to be very aware that it's not going to be easy. It's not popular. In fact, it's going to cost you a lot. To come to Christ is free, but it costs everything. If you're a Christian, and you've made some kind of a commitment to Christ already. You may have made a profession. You may have been baptized. You may have even joined a church. I want to challenge you to inspect that commitment. Look at your life this past week. Based on the decisions and choices that you made this week, let me ask you this, and we'll be done. Based on the decisions and the choices that you made this week, who do you fear? Your words, your actions this week, what does it show? Who you fear? To whom are you loyal? Where do your loves lie? Where does your devotion lie? Are you carrying your plans and dreams around with you? Or are you carrying a cross? Are you in partnership with others who follow Christ? Do you participate in Christ's mission? by helping those who serve Him. Has your commitment to Christ cost anything? Because Jesus said it will cost. And if my commitment to Christ hasn't cost me anything, you might check that commitment out. It might not be what He's talking about. Persecution is a real certainty. It's a guarantee. But are you standing Christ. Will you stand and be counted?